Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Boer. And Bill, a boar by any other name, are they still a boar? <laughs> yeah. So, that sounded like a dig on you, because you're not boring. I mean, your name is boar, but I'm saying. Right. But that would also, of course, be sort of a paraphrase or an allusion to, an homage, as we say, to Shakespeare's uh, Rose by any other name is still a rose, which could be taken as Shakespeare weighing in on the sort of classic nominalist realist debate on whether or not the sort of way we categorize things yeah. is more than a category or is it actually tapping into something that is deeper, transcendent, and in touch with more than we can see, experience, touch, or feel that goes beyond to which we can contemplate with reason and tap into something like divine intelligence. Yeah, and... Last week, I gave the uh, first lecture for Church History 2, and I always struggle with, you know, you have to do these huge overviews and trying to, you know, again, most seminarians. Uh, you know how Heidegger taught Aristotle? He'd get up and say, Heidegger, Heidegger would say, Aristotle was born, he lived, he worked, then he died. Now let's get to his thought. So you could just do that. Could do that. Could have done. Could have gone that direction. If you're direction. struggling with the big overviews, you could cut out some of this by like Heidegger. There's the Heidegger approach to things. Well, part of you know, as you're trying to throw social history at folks, philosophy, and things like that, um, you know, one of the things that it seemed this week, this time, for whatever reason, I felt I felt that in trying to help them understand and and you know, really in a capsulized form, to look at the um, kind of nominalist movement in the context of both Renaissance humanism and in the backdrop of the radical changes that, that happen, I, I think a lot of it has to do with the way the face of Europe changed in the wake of the, of the, of the plague. I mean, uh, part of, I think, there's, you know, it's complicated. Generally, in the wake of plagues, the face gets thinner. Like, you've had the flu for a week, and you look a little thinner. Yeah, I've lost some weight. All right. But I didn't lose half of my population in my country. <laughs> no, that would have been – you'd be too thin. For that would be clothes. too thin, to, yeah. That would be expensive. But, I mean, the economic, uh, social, and I think religious upheaval of the fact that anywhere from a third to two-thirds of Europe died, I think that's part of the backdrop where, if you would, the optimism of the uh, Thomistic synthesis. Um, and by and, the Thomistic synthesis, we're talking about the fact that we've got this sort of ancient church project, right, of reconciling – Hellenistic thought and and the biblical witness. Well, and I think and then that, yeah. yeah, Aristotle comes back, comes on the scene uh, in the 13th century, right? Aquinas wrestles with that, and it just you know, and getting a stable, semi somewhat stable relationship between natural knowledge, science, philosophy, and Christian revelation that actually allows you to have a sort of, as contemporary cosmologists would say, a theory of everything. Yeah, and I think with with Aquinas, there was this, the synthesis was not only philosophy and theology, but it was church and state. It was uh, nature and grace. There was his his great system was one that, um, and and again, I mean, in no way I think one of the the myths sometimes that some Protestants have is that 
the Thomistic worldview was the dominant view, and it wasn't because uh, nominalism in part grows out of the Franciscan Augustinian, you know, critique of him. But still, there was a sense where you know the 13th century is a century of reform. It was a growth of population, urban centers, uh, a lot of great technology that came from the uh, and knowledge that came from interacting with the East because of the Crusades and and opening trade routes. All of that, um, really, Europe had kind of come back and it had taken it, you know, from you know the collapse of the Europe Roman Empire. Europe was made great again, yeah. just like when. Our president first studied Aristotle and other great classical texts. Cadet Bone Spur was inspired. <laughs> <laughs> but then some rats yeah, got yeah, into yeah. the thing. And uh, and so I think part of even the Renaissance, I mean, the Renaissance, it was is was really a looking back. How do we recreate society? How, what, how do we do this? And I think the, for as wonderful as the number of saints and scholars the 13th century produced – the 14th century not only produced um, a plague, but it also gave us uh, a series of horrific popes, um, one in particular who uh, tried to turn upside down the whole idea of, you know, Francis, the greatest saint of the 13th century, but Pope John XXIII said, well, no, the Bible doesn't really teach poverty. That's, you know, Jesus really wasn't poor. That, that's the, none of that was really true. And it's that kind. This is Paula White. Yeah, Paula White. Yeah, <laughs> that's, uh, you know that's a uh, so it's, that, that's the kind of stuff that's still it's still got, it's still got to hear. The young it, people still like it. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I don't think how many young people do you think follow her. I think I think she's in her. I think the president's her demographic. That's true. That's true. Yeah, but the no, president's young at heart. <laughs> yeah, his heart is young. <laughs> something's young. Yeah, something's young. Uh, but so, at any rate. So it was this attempt to kind of rethink after the ashes. I mean, it's funny. You you enjoy this dystopian stuff. Well, it really happened in the 14th century. This really was uh, – this was worse than the zombies what happened. And uh, I think the, the – um, Worse than the zombies. Worse than the zombies. I don't know. I, I just I, – I take, I take umbrage. You take umbrage with that. Not but, that we have zombies, but – any rate. But so I think nominalism was an attempt to try with a lot of different things. It was a spiritual reform. It was a philosophical reform. It was, um, you know, if you would, made implications of some of the new science of its time. And I think it, it helped It helped both uh, give a worldview to the reformers and it also gave the reformers something to react against. So I think it was, it was in many ways, I think, the birth of the modern world. Which uh, Gillespie's book – the theological origins of modernity would agree with you on that point. Very good. So I think so. Nominalism, good, bad, ugly. Well, you're the theologian. You make those values. I just, I'm just, I'm just stating the facts. I'm just making the observations just the for facts, the historical. Babe. Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, do you, as someone who finds your sympathies more with? I mean, the, in the 13th century, that's like faddish to you. That's current events, right? Yeah, I mean, no. that's. Uh, well, I think. Uh, I think like with most attempts to try to rethink things, it gave us some contributions and I think uh, – but it also um, – you know, I think th- some things were lost. I think for instance, you know, there's this idea of the freedom of God, you know, the um, the idea that, you know, even working up theoretically, you have it in Duns Scotus, you have a William of Ockham and there's some debate. I mean, you know, Scotus's work was – 
it's it's just not until the 20th century was a kind of a critical edition of it because he died young and he was um, very a very only thick, the good die young very thick and sublime the doctor sublime doctor so it's hard to understand him but even it's theoretical that if God you know, wanted to say tomorrow that um, good was evil and evil was good God yeah the, could the do that. saints were were damned and sinners were redeemed right that the, the God could just say that which was he was I mean. I think in the context, again, of what he was using as an example, but the idea that God's freedom, I mean, God, what is good is what God says is good, as opposed to this idea that there is some sort of analogy, uh, if you would, between the idea of that God is good and our sense of goodness, that there is some sort of, there, there is, there is ordained, there's a divine ordination of power. In other words, that it gets in this arguments in the Old Testament is something, you know, is there an independence good that, that we all conform to, that even God has to conform to, a sense of justice apart from God? I mean, that's part of the debate in, um, in you know, Abraham and God is based on part of that idea. And the euthyphro, which we talked about a couple months yeah, ago. This, so, is the, this is the uh, question in the euthyphro. Right. And so uh, what the anomalist in many ways, because I think, you know, you looked around you and and, and half of the world around you died— so this idea of this harmony between heaven and earth and also the, the optimism of the church reforming itself in the 13th century seemed like a very distant memory in the 14th century with you know the papacy being in Avignon. And then there, at one point there were two popes and, and the attempt to try to correct the two-pope situation like only an ecclesial committee can do. There were three popes for a while. So, um, what if you, get, if you can have multiple posts, but like tag team wrestling? Like, all right, I'm really good on social justice stuff, but I'm not so good on Augustine and Luther. Tag, and then comes Benedict, and you kind of got like you just have like tag team popes. Like you kind of are, are you jealous? I don't see Benedict going off yeah, the top are you rope at his age. I'm really good at hiring artists and conquering people, and you know having illegitimate children. So I, I've got that covered. Who's going to come in and actually do the prayer stuff? Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Now that, that might've worked out in the Renaissance, but it, uh, so I think in this backdrop of this sea change, then you had people asking, you know, new questions or looking at things a little differently. How do we, I think, again, I do think that we are amiss if we think about philosophy and theology apart from the context in which they rise. And I think, What's interesting to me as well is that, uh, you know, you've got this kind of shotgun of attempts throughout uh, Christianity, and you can just see it in see, uh, social media of people trying to find some new footing in this kind of whatever age we're in. And uh, you got, you know, we and I talk about it all the time. I mean, we've got, um, you know, even just this little community of people we talk to, you know, the people have, uh, you know, Luther has become, uh, you know, the magisterium for most people, for a certain group of people, that everything's through Luther, and that's a corrective. You've got the process people trying to rework it to try to keep it uh, somehow feeling the need that we have to make Christianity change to fit into uh, whatever particular metaphysics, or no, they don't believe metaphysics, whatever physics they're looking at. Um, you've got the regression, if you would, of different places, the Benedict option, other attempts to do different things. So I think what... What's interesting about looking at we're coming out with a bunker option, by the way. It's and you can't be here because not that big, but we'll say for for like uh, one ninety nine, one hundred ninety nine dollars. Bill that you know. If you call now, though, it's a special thing. We'll send you plans and an Amazon checklist, and you can make your own bunker and be with us in the in the movement. Yeah. It's a movement. It's a movement. It is a movement. But there's a cost, like any movement. 
and the cost comes, <laughs> you pay it to us, and the reward is to you in this life and the next. There we go. It's our own little form of indulgence. Exactly. But we're indulging you. By yeah. Letting you in on the secret of this dark literature. And that's uh, not a metaphor. It is a dark, you know, it's, we're in good spirits, but it is dark. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think even the basis of covenant theology that has a rebirth in, in reform circles, really, that language comes from the nominalist in terms of the idea that there's not this analogy of being anymore. And so, therefore, God and God's freedom um, deals with humanity in a covenantial way. In many ways, I think the Franciscan scholars were trying to move away from some of the philosophical language, and they were highly critical of – they thought – Thomas and his followers were much too enamored with Aristotle, and they go back to biblical kind of ideas, uh, but with a very, a very rarefied philosophical background. So this idea that this God is elevated and made, in some levels, more sovereign and independent, okay, and therefore humanity's only opportunity to really deal with God is through a covenant. And so, what I think is one of the interesting things about that, whether it's an intended or unintended consequence, is that. The what's surprising is by elevating the view of God, you're actually also lifting the importance of human, the human agency. I mean, the human becomes a covenantal partner with God in this. And uh, whereas there's this kind of beautiful, you consider this beautiful, you know, ontological unity in a Thomistic system, but the emerging free man, if you would, of uh, late medieval period entering into the modern period suddenly becomes this person who God makes covenants with. And so the world begins a place, you know, covenant becomes a way of looking at how you establish humanity in the world. So this is only a few steps away from natural law or international law and things like that that happens in the modern movement. Now, it's interesting, though, because the eclipsing of internet, of natural law, and you get international. <laughs> yeah, you know, really, yeah. You know, it's kind of an interesting on one level, yeah. yeah. So is there hoarseness? Bill, tell me that. What is hoarseness? Why my voice sounds Other right than now, your horse. I was thinking about, I was um, thinking, or let's, to not confuse it with your voice, what is platypusness? <laughs> Beyond actually platypi. That's right, right? There's platypi, I think, right? Uh, yeah, I just, think, I just think it's either God or evolution, just tired. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Now, now, I do think there is. I think, I mean, I, I would probably be in the middle position. I think at least there's something like that conceptually. I mean, there's there's something, it's more than just the individual platyp, platypus. Platypus <laughs> <laughs> to make the platypus. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it? because of the conversations you find here. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out 
on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Stephen Rowe, Ben Crosby, John Schneider, Steve Lipless, and Charlotte Donlin. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. Well, it's interesting because you, well, I guess you, so we we categorize those things. We right. see all these things that look like the strange. I think when they first sent one of those back to like scholars in England or something, they thought it was a joke. They thought, no, just people sewed this together. <laughs> but like, you know, but I mean, so when we make these categories, are they, do the categories exist somewhere? Do they have independent reality? Or are they things that, that people that with similar descriptive faculties would say, yeah, that's more like that. That's more like that. I mean, we still can't agree on the tomato. I mean, most people say it's, it's, scientists tell us it's a fruit, but everybody I know thinks it's a vegetable. Right. <laughs> yeah, like, so well, that's the case for universe. Just because, well, yeah, that's because there are a few outliers doesn't mean we, for most of us, we can come, most of the time we can come up with most, you know, we can come up with things that we can agree upon. Although, you know, in terms of that's, you know, the danger of any hyper skepticism, you know, when you have, when you, if you go to such a extreme, you know, if the individual becomes such a free agent and the thing only exists in its own self, then, uh, then it does – communication and science and other things become a little more complicated. So I do think there's a sense where we, you know, just for uh, whatever, you know, you want to call it, I think we do cat make categories. We do make summary statements. We do agree upon general categories of things. Now, in terms of what – where does that exist outside of the mind or does that exist outside of the agreed upon definitions? Well, uh, I'm not sure it does. So you would be squarely in the nominalist camp. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, that's that. No, the idea. I'm mean, not a nominalist. Strict nominalist would just say it's just the individualization. I mean, there's a middle position where it talks about where you say, well, yes, there does it does exist in a concept. Well, I mean, yeah, right. And then you could say that. So a strict nominalist would say the concept is a, is a tool. Yeah, yeah. But then if you're if you're in the middle middle position and you're saying the kind, okay, if you're trying to take the middle position that, well, the concept exists, except only in our minds. How do we all have the same, con I mean, or do we have the same concept in the sense of uh, outside of the genome and species, if you go to like an, ab like an Aboriginal culture that's untouched by modern categories, or if you compare, like, I'm sure the categor categorizations look really different. Like, so is, is it all constructive? Um, well, what do you think? Oh, I, I don't give, I, I'm, I'm, I realize, as I think about our conversation, I am a relatively unreflective and lazy nominalist. <laughs> Although I probably rhetorically lean on, I, I would guess that most people that are Christians or any form of like Platonists, uh, at least in their metaphors, wind up stumbling into language that really they couldn't legitimize. Right. So I would say. Right, because although nominalism makes more sense to me, and we should make we should we should like make clear, right? Like people like Occam, we're not. I mean, they were probabilists, and they were pretty certain probabilists. I mean, they didn't think God was ever going to one day say, "All right, 
uh, we're damning the saints. We're doing no, this. No. It's all over. You know, it's, it's, this no. is this is not the, um, the God does not function like the Trump White House. Right? No. There's no, there's no. All right, we're doing something new, depending on who I last talked with. Right. By the way, did you see the Michael Wolf Saturday Night Live skit with uh, Joe and Mika at MSNBC? Oh yeah, we're yeah. like. They asked about the, you know, the journal. I mean, some of these reports are unsubstantiated. Fred Armisen's playing Wolf. Did you like the book? <laughs> Did you enjoy it? You had fun reading it? Okay. <laughs> Which is so funny because that's like what Wolf says. Like, basically, it's a great read, right? Okay. <laughs> no, but I mean, I think that, so the, so people like Occam were probabilists and they, they didn't, they were just questioning the, how we would know that. And, right. And again, we're more in an analogy of faith than, analogy of being well although let's say they probably wouldn't want to use language like that that's anachronistic but i would say like in contemporary language i would probably put more stock in a theology of nature versus a natural theology which is a different way it's not saying that certain sense couldn't be made of nature but that comes from top down in some sense like special revelation it doesn't doesn't uh, which is known, you know, it's faith-seeking understanding. So that being said, uh, I would say that, yeah, and I, I think I would have sort of, I mean, I, I would filter my nominalist tendencies through something like Karl Barth and say, and say that, like, the divine freedom, God is the one who loves in freedom, and that's where the divine being is totally free and in, any, and in no sense arbitrary because of the nature of, you know, God is the one who is free, is the one who loves in freedom and is is freedom in fellowship in his own being. And so calls us into this sort of thing. So, I mean, I think uh, that being the case with platypusness, yeah, I would be, I am probably, I would guess, more, I'm not a theological skeptic at all. I might have philosophically skeptical tendencies. Yeah. And I tend to like Hume and Nietzsche and... People like that. I mean, I, I tend to find that stuff more compelling uh, in its circumscribing what we know via the sort of, you know, operative tools of reason on the kind of horizontal plane. Yeah. And I tend to have – I actually – I tend to like the other guys better. I mean, I tend to – the idealist, you know, the realist better. But as a person in the – you know, it's, it's a harder – it's a harder philosophical uh, position to to really hold on to, g- given our contemporary worldview about stuff. So I think, I mean, I yeah, you have to live schizophrenically uh, a little bit. Like yeah. kind of, you have to kind of, which is, I think, this is my issue. It it leads to a sort of disintegrated kind of understanding of God, the world, and ourselves. Holding to it, I mean, it's interesting because holding to the integ- to the most integrative view. Okay, uh, leads to a weird kind of. Yeah, it it does. I mean, I think it, it, in some levels it leads you to wanting, uh, not dissimilar from our last podcast, it makes you want to return to a time that we're not going to get back to. I yeah, mean, and it tends to romanticize that time, as well. And I think other, I think sometimes I appreciate uh, Aquinas. The time for that for me was before the Coke changed his formula for <laughs> yeah. the first time. Yeah. <laughs> Although I would say Coke Zero with the no sugar is giving me hope that someone at Coca Cola is it because it's pretty good. It's actually yeah. Well, um, I think for me also, and it's interesting about because Occam, with sometimes there's he's making you know his his middle points are taken out, 
And because he would, he was actually, you know, the thing about God saying, you know, the dam could be saved and all that, he was trying to make a point. You know, you have to get to the end of it. Right. Where he says, that, but that's absolutely not the case, you know. So, and I think the and same. And you couldn't, I mean, you, Occam is not an nominalist. I mean, he's no. not, he, he, he's critiquing this kind of realism of Aquinas, modern realism of Aquinas, but he's not. I mean, the, he's the one who gets credit for the name, right? Exactly. Yeah. The antecedent is maybe the seeds are there, you could argue, or something, yeah. but it's not. No, no. I think the other thing too, though, I I do think um, one of the shadow residues of this idea of the absolute power of God shows up in the double predestination doctrine of of the reformers, and particularly the scholastic reformers. I think that's I think that's the dark num. I think that's the dark version of the nominalist God. Um, but I mean, that's there though in the whole Western tradition. But there, but it's, it's there, but it's also softened. I mean, it's certainly Bonaventure softens it. Aquinas, I mean, in some levels it's softened in Aquinas in part because of this idea of, of God's, God's not going to act outside of his goodness. But I do think some of the language of the extreme sovereignty of God. But you can find in the medieval period, like the, the, the uh, elect are going to look at the reprobate. Sure. I'm, and I'm see glad, the suffering I'm in saying, hell. And but, but I mean, that's. But but you put that in with a covenant theology, and it has a different. And in fact, is it, it it comes into the it stays in the tradition. In part two, it's also the argument around Augustine. Some of the reformers grabbed that late Augustine and held on to him like that was what the final word was. And I do think that part of that comes though that has a certain. Um, I don't know. You know, you've got these bold. You've got these bold early modern people who have this view of themselves being the elect um, as they conquer the world economically, and and um, there's a lot of there's a lot of really tragic repercussions for that. Um, and for whatever reason, there seems to be still schools of thought in among some of our reform brethren who mostly brother. Uh, yeah, they're, not, they're not a lot of systems. Not in the circles you're talking about. That's that uh, you know. When they somehow when they're when they're smiling and talking about the sovereignty of God, I I hear uh, I hear Occam's speculation. I don't think Occam thought it, but they, I hear Occam's speculation. Some of that stuff. Let so. me make a romantic defense of nominalism. I think uh, you know Paul Tripp, who is actually from the counseling center that used to be at Westminster Seminary. <laughs> so now I'm returning to the full circle to a reformed tribe that you know I think you were subtly um, needling. Char- gently. I don't think I was very subtle. <laughs> if I if I was subtle, I apologize. It's still I'm still not feeling hundred percent. So I think that you know, Tripp says that at the heart of human, at the heart of his anthropology is to understand that we're humans are made to be revelation receivers, right? And not just you know you know from God in many ways, right? I mean, sounds God very Thomistic to right? me. Well, I mean, you could. I mean, Bart, no, I, no, Bart would say that, right? Bart said that God can reveal himself in a a flute concerto, a, a communist manifesto, or a dead dog. Can I? Well, the truth of the matter is, regardless of what, what your philosophy is, if you believe God wants to have a relationship with humanity, there's some sort of analogy. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, right. yeah. Right. Go ahead. Yeah, and but he also says, "Trips says we're not just made to be revelation receivers, but meaning makers." That you know, we Adam named things in the garden. Mm, yeah, and so the picture's not just of Adam figuring out that well, rose by. Any other name is still a rose. A platypus by any other name belongs to this. I don't know what platypi would be in the Hebrew. <laughs> platypi. But, um, 
I'm sure it's not. I, I know. In the, I know. In the Klingon, it would be or something like that. But <laughs> by the way, the new Star Trek Discovery show is fantastic. Let me just say. But but I digress. So I think part of the this sense of which nominalism, there's something that strikes a chord with me in what Tripp's saying. Like um, Paul Tripp is saying that, like that, the sense of, of which that the theater of God's glory and the revelation where God bears witness you know, through things like the Bible and through the world, but it is a witness and we've got to make sense of it. And part of our vocation and calling is words and concepts as God creates through and in the word that part of, so I, like, I think the nominalist uh, turn does not leave me despairing, but, but, but might be part of the call to living in agency and freedom. Yeah, I, I also think you have to, there was there were some really positive correctives they were trying to do. They were trying to reestablish the idea that really no, it's it's will more than intellect. It's about love. You know, that yeah. was part of what they were trying to say. The other thing, you know, um, if humans are God's appointed representatives and partners responsible for their own lives, society and world in the basis and within the limits of the treaty or covenant that God stipulated, then humans are no longer primarily moved by second causes. But they're moved by a primary saying yes. So there's a sense where uh, you can see also where a different understanding of faith is going to be emerging from this kind of understanding. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, well, faith, faith seeking understanding. Yeah. Oh, 
Bye-bye.